Last week I began by reading from Psalm 119. I'd like to continue from where we left off. So if you'll look at Psalm uh, 119, uh, verses 105 to 112, uh, we'll look at the next section there just quickly. It's a passage that we're very familiar with. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in your hand, in my hand. Yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Now, uh, one of the things that we're talking about in this series of um, uh, worldviews is the attitude towards the scriptures. And I could talk about a lot of things in the worldviews, but it's really important to get that part down. So let me just, since you have this first part, let me uh, do it really quickly. What a worldview is, is really an interpretive device uh, really over your senses that you that you grew up with as you got your language, as you experienced your culture, as you went through the environment that you were in, all of that gave you this apparatus within you that said, this is how to see the world. That's a worldview. The original worldview of God that was given to Adam and Eve was lost in the Garden of Eden. And then what happened was uh, God confounded the languages at Babel and scattered people to various areas. And each of those nations and cultures developed their own worldview, their own perspective of what things are like. And so uh, the, the biblical one, the worldview of God, had, had been lost in humanity. God then recreates that by uh, a person named Abraham and a people that would come from him. A language that is Hebrew that would be the language of that people. A land of promise that would be their, their geographical area. And then a culture and a religion that would be Torah-based, that would create a worldview within it that was a godly worldview, that was a biblical worldview, and would then be a light to the nations uh, to understand what God wanted. Um, in the context of that, then, uh, the doing of the word becomes the experience that reinforces that worldview. And in a sense, separates you from the other worldviews uh, in, in the world. We also talked about a mindset. The mindset is simply a focus on the direction and the intentionality of your life. The biblical one is that you are humble so that you're teachable, that you trust God in faith and you obey Him as we just sang, trust and obey. The mindset of the world is a one of personal self-pride and self-direction which always ends up disobeying God. It always ends up saying, if there's a God Bless me in what I'm doing. So when you hear people say, I want to do a great thing for God, they are using the world's mindset in a biblical context. If they say, I want to do what God's asked me to do, well, what if he's only told you to stand in the corner? Then that's God's will and you do it. He will be glorified in that. No, I want to bring him glory, right? And that's that ego that rises up 
and, and gets in the way. And so we are told that we are to not be conformed to this world, whatever culture we're in, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's done by paying attention to the biblical text in the biblical worldview. Now, I talked about uh, several worldviews, talked about the Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian ones that were distinct in the ancient world, and then those came together. They came together by a man named Augustine and the church fathers who began to weave a tapestry, particularly of Plato, but of the Greco-Roman world with the Judeo-Christian world, and in doing that, created a Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian worldview that we traditionally call the pre-modern worldview or the traditional worldview. And that worldview is really a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. It's, it's a mixture of those two things. And uh, it feels compatible. Uh, a mixture doesn't feel odd and doesn't feel like a mixture to the generations after it was mixed. Because they grow up with it already together and it makes perfect sense to them. But if somebody from the earlier generations had come in and seen, Paul, for example, had seen that uh, merging, or Plato would have seen that merging, they would have said, what are you doing? These are, these are not compatible. But once they're done, the people that grow up with that internalize it, it makes perfect sense to them. We talked about that process, and I said the primary difference... And this is why we read the psalm here. The primary difference between the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian worldview was that the Greco-Roman worldview would look at the circumstances, look at how uh, things appeared to be, and inferred from that that the gods were communicating to them. Things are going good, the gods are happy. Things are going bad, gods are upset. Right? Uh, I try to appease the gods. I try to uh, manipulate them so that I can do what I need to do and what I want to do because the gods are kind of like people. And they're just superpower people. And so that's the mindset of the Greco-Roman worldview. The Judeo-Christian worldview is there is a God who created us. That God who created us has given us His Word. And that Word is a lamp unto my feet so I won't stumble and a light unto my path, so that I'll know which way to walk. In other words, the Scriptures gives me the way to look at the world, instead of the world gives me the way to look at the Scriptures. You with me? Now, when those things are merged, what, what resulted in the traditional pre-modern worldview was, God speaks through His Word, and through circumstances. So, I can understand His Word better by looking at my experience. And what that leads to very quickly is we just shortcut it. It's too much work to learn to read. Too much work to study that thing. It's easier to just use the force. And just let the circumstances happen and blame them on God. Which frankly I think is blasphemy. But it became standard. And so that worldview centralized, became corrupt, people became illiterate, and it created serious problems for, uh, uh, for Christians and for the church. Judaism and Christianity separated. The East and the West separated. I talked about that last time, so I won't go into that again. Um, and then there was a pathway out of that traditional worldview 
that pre-modern worldview towards modernity. And I gave those to you last week. They're at the bottom of the page, and now I'm at the bottom of the page. Um, there was the Black Death that devastated Europe. Uh, the Renaissance revived the Greco-Roman art and literature, remixed uh, the Judeo-Christian content with it. There was global exploration uh, all over the world. The Americas were discovered. The Reformation revived the notion of a biblical faith instead of just using the circumstances. And there was, in the Reformers, a return to Hebrew as part of the understanding of the biblical text, not just Greek. And so the reformers came back somewhat, but didn't come back all the way. Um, and then the Enlightenment came along with a push towards reason and observational science as the basis of all knowledge, uh, or surer knowledge. And so what that does is it brings us back to where we were last week. And we're on the cusp now of modernity. The modern world, depending on who you're talking to, is different centuries. I'm going to, to mark it from the 1400s when all of these steps are clearly going on. That's when it's emerging, all the way up to the 1960s. So if you were born in the 1900s, you were born at the end of modernity and at the beginning of what's called the postmodern world. If you were born after the 1900s, you are clearly in the postmodern world. And your children are postmodern children, even though you may try to teach them modern worldview, they are going to be exposed in the academic world and in their peers to the postmodern world that I'll talk about later in the series. But tonight, today, I want to talk specifically about the modern world. But I have to back up and pick up two pieces and bring them forward. I talked about Augustine. I said that in the early years of the traditional period, he wove together, particularly using Plato, the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian world. Right towards the time of the split, right after the time of the split of the East and West, so after 1000 AD, around the 1200s, another guy came along. His name was Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas uh, did the same thing that Augustine did, but he did it differently. Augustine took Plato and the scriptures and wove them together. Augustine took Aristotle and the, the scriptures and wove them together. Now, what's the difference between Plato and Aristotle? Plato believed that there was an ideal reality that was not of this world. Sound familiar? That was the, the world of the forms. And so there were candles... There's like the ultimate real candle up in the place of the gods. And all the candles on earth are simply patterned after that. And so he was very focused on another world. Aristotle was interested in this stuff. 
He was more interested in this real world and let's observe it and let's see how it works. He's very practical in that sense. So what we got is a move from this kind of ideational thing which which Augustine thought fit well into things like Hebrews. You'll make the tabernacle after the pattern that's in heaven. Right? But Aristotle looked and said, wait a minute, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And he made the earth and he put us on the earth, therefore we need to take a look at the earth. And so uh, those uh, Aquinas taking Aristotle and mixing it gave a different kind of mix that would lead into the Renaissance and the Reformation and a number of other things that were going on. So it's important to keep that in mind. One historian who I like to read, uh, Thomas Cahill, who wrote several books on the ancient world and the medieval world, and he's moving up towards the modern world, um, has, has started his latest book on the Middle Ages talking about a, a tennis match, a doubles match, between Augustine and Plato on one team and Aristotle and Aquinas on the other team and that those that, that game is the thing that has uh, brought about most of the thoughts and the mixing of the Judeo-Christian and the Greco-Roman world. Uh, very, very interesting notion in that context. So, uh, we have that going on in the church and then we have another thing happening in the Western church. Martin Luther and others begin to rebel against the religious dogma and tradition, especially when it contradicted the scripture. And so one of the things the reformers did, because over time, what happens is this. All documents have to be interpreted. And all documents over time develop kind of an official interpretation. We see that with our documents in this country. The, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, those things. What happens is the court systems begin to interpret it. That interpretation begins to take a life of its own. And sometimes people look at it and say, you know, I think the interpretation doesn't match what the text originally meant. That happened with church tradition and dogma. Not all of it was bad. That had happened with Judaism, remember? Jesus said about some of the traditions of the uh, rabbis, you put the traditions of men over the word of God and make the word of God of no effect. Right? Then Jesus turns around and says to his disciples, the Pharisees are in the seat of Moses. So whatever they do, whatever they tell you to do, obey them. Follow their traditions. But don't be like them because they teach and don't do. So Jesus both upheld tradition and criticized tradition. Because the oral tradition is allowed to breathe, but the word of God is forever settled in heaven. You get that? So what the Reformation did was it said, wait a minute, the tale of tradition is wagging the text of truth. And so the Reformers began to argue against the church's traditions, not against the text, against the church's traditions, trying to get back to the text. Now, the reformers are often said to be totally against tradition. Only, let me say this as gently as I can, only idiots are opposed to tradition. Now, why would you say that, Bruce? 
because the word idiot comes from the word idiosyncratic or in so highly individual, right? So what a person is doing when they say, I don't want tradition, is they say, I don't care what the, the apostles taught. I don't care what the, the people in the period right after them taught. I don't care what the reformers taught. I don't care what anybody taught. I'm just going to read the text and get it for myself. Very Greco-Roman. Not Judeo-Christian. And the Bible says of those who all do what's right in their own eyes, that that's not a good thing. So, there's two approaches to tradition. One approach to tradition is to simply say, I'm going to follow what my denomination has said is the uh, approach to Scripture. And that's what denominationalism was. The Lutherans saw it a little different than the Catholics. The Anglicans saw it a little different than the Methodists. The Baptists saw it a little different. Each of the denominations kind of found their way and you joined a group so that you were under some authority of tradition where you thought that that group was operating closest to where the tradition fit the Scriptures. In the 60s with post-denom... Postmodernism, we're going to get non-denominationalism, which is kind of a smorgasbord approach to Christianity, where you just pick and choose whatever you want. Very postmodern. Okay, there is no truth. There's just what I like. I'll talk about that later. But the idea of the Reformation and modernity was that there is a truth. That truth can be known, and that truth needs to be understood through a basic system of knowledge that involves both the text or, or the reality and the interpretation of that. And that brings me to uh, three individuals. Well, I have to talk about the Enlightenment first. The Enlightenment followed the Reformation, and the Reformers said, can't really trust all the traditions of the church. But we can trust the word. Okay? The Enlightenment came along and said, well, maybe we can't trust the word. And so people began to observe the creation and began to notice that what the church said was true about the creation wasn't what they saw. So Copernicus said, as I look at this, the earth is not the center of the universe, it's going around the sun. And some in the church said, the sun is going around the church, around the earth. Thus saith the church, right? Well, I don't see it that way. Out comes the sword, thus saith, well, yeah, you know, as I think about it, it does look that way. Galileo. You know, I think the moon's got pit marks on it. God made it. It was good and it's perfect. There are no pit marks on the moon. Yeah, I think, I think they're there. Well, maybe they're not. You know, maybe, you know I've got some fuzz on my, uh, on my... Because if you didn't, then you got to go talk to God directly. Okay? Uh, so what you begin to get is this struggle between the natural sciences that begin to look at the creation and say, 
it looks to me like what the church has said in their tradition and maybe what the text says isn't right. So maybe we don't need God. And the Enlightenment said we can do it by observation and reason ourselves. So what we have in the beginning of the modern era is an appeal to science, an appeal to reason as a conflict to an appeal to the Word of God. Tradition is somewhat out the window. Now the text itself may be out the window. And in the 1800s, three people arrived. Now these are three representatives, but three people arrived. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about this because this is my area of expertise and for several of you it's your area of expertise too, the behavioral sciences. In the old religious world, pre-modern, the bishop spoke for God and the priest spoke for God. And the deacon spoke for God. Therefore, you do what they say. And you believe what they say to believe. Or at least you pretend to believe it, right? Those were the authorities of what reality was. But in the 1800s, a new group of authorities rose to challenge the church in terms of understanding the reality about human nature and about human behavior. They were the academic disciplines of anthropology, sociology, and psychology. In the 1860s, Charles Darwin, Chuck to his friends, graduated from seminary. In seminary, he studied the natural world and was what they called a naturalist. And Graduating from seminary, because that's the only place you could graduate from, he could have taken a small church somewhere. He wasn't so inclined. So he went on a world cruise on the HMS Beagle with a Bible-thumping captain. That Bible-thumping captain was untrained in Scripture, but heck, he had a Bible, so you know he should have been an American. I can, I can interpret it any way I want. And as he goes from port to port and play, island to island, he's thumping about how God made the heavens and the earth. That's just exactly as Bishop Usher had said, you know, March 29th it's at 9 a.m. on October 23rd, and that's it. And he made it exactly the way it is, as it was at the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And he drove Darwin crazy. And so Darwin started looking a little closer at species, and particularly at the Galapagos Islands. He began to notice that they were different, and he came up with a theory to revive the old Greek notion that the, that the animals had given rise to human beings. And he came up with this idea of natural selection. That if you have a little difference... Okay, if my nose is bigger than your nose, and some reason my nose allows me not only to survive but reproduce, the next generation are likely to have bigger noses. And he thought that that could give an explanation, and therefore we don't have to think about man being created out of dirt. 
and the field of anthropology would grab onto that evolutionary perspective and use it both for biology and for culture and begin to look at the world through that worldview. Second, there was a guy, a Jewish guy. First one was a Christian. This guy was Jewish. His name was Karl Marx. He was not one of the Marx brothers. Karl was a different one. Karl wasn't too happy with his religion. And so he liked the idea of progress, which is clearly a Jewish idea. And he began to look at history and said, people started out almost like a Garden of Eden. They were hunters and gatherers. Everybody got along. They were egalitarian. It was wonderful. It was sweet. And then they began to have a surplus. And when they had a surplus, I tried to get more and you tried to get more. And that created a problem. And then there's a struggle between us. And now I have to guard my stuff. And so I create class and caste and all that kind of thing. And the world gets more and more crazy. And we get get more and more uh, alienated from each other. And the religious people come in and they start... Uh, dumbing us down with the opiate of the people called religion. And what that does is that puts people in charge. And he thought what would happen is eventually after an industrial revolution, there would be a, a rising up of the workers against the uh, proletariat. And it would create a, um, a, a new age where everybody did what they did well and put it together, and everybody got what they needed. From each, as he's able, to each, as he needs. And and Marxism became the idea of sociology and how society should be developed. And it still remains one of the major schools in sociology to this day. And in political science, it's, its cousin which is part of the struggle that's going on in our culture today. Now, the difference between Darwin and Marx was Darwin was only interested in the physiological development. Marx was interested in the sociological development. And and Darwin thought that we were basically organisms in some sense. Marx thought that we were basically good. Because if everybody has their needs met and everything's going well, all war and all problems and all crime will go away. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether a group of people can use communism or Marxism in that way. It's been tried, but not worked out so well. I think because human nature is not what Marx thought. Now, there's a third guy. You know him well. His name is Freud. He came out about just a little after these other guys. And Freud, also Jewish, hated religion and hated Judaism and hated the Bible. Wrote three books condemning it. And he decided that God was just a projection of something that's really deep inside of you called the unconscious. Now in the Bible... How does God communicate to his people? Dreams, right? Joseph could interpret dreams. God would appear in a vision, or dr- visions and dreams. What 
Freud said was, your unconscious can be interpreted by understanding your dreams. The interpretation of dreams. In other words, it's not out there. It's in here. Now, the difference between Freud and Marx is while Marx thought we were basically warm, fuzzy, good, Freud thought there's a little Freddy Krueger down there living inside of you that's trying to get out. And he called it the id. And the id's trying to have its own way and society creates a superego. That's not a football player. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a conscience. And the conscience that you're given by your culture says, no, you shouldn't do that. Okay? That little kid, don't take his candy. I want to take his candy. Okay? So the ego, then, the conscious part of us, tries to figure out, how do I get what the id wants without violating the rules? Hey, little kid, if you give me that candy now, tomorrow, I'll give you four. And the kid gives you the candy and you'd never show up again, right? That's... That's oversimplified, but that's Freudian theory, right? So these three guys, psychology, sociology, and anthropology, became the bishop and the priest and the deacon of the modern world. They will tell us how to raise our children. They will tell us how to educate our children. They will tell us how to deal with grief. They will tell us everything. Because they are the alternative to the Judeo-Christian nonsense of the past. And that is the beginning of modernity, really the late 1800s, when those come into place. Now, what does that do? Well, the church has got to deal with this. Okay? How is the church going to deal with this? The church uh, didn't deal with it uniformly. The church split into two. It was called, it started in the early 1900s, it was called the Fundamentalist Modernist Debates started in the Presbyterians, and it shot through all the denominations. It was a big fight between what, what is the church going to do with the Word of God and science. The secular people were saying, we don't need the Word of God. What we're going to do with the Word of God is it's no longer going to be the Word of God, it's going to be the Word of man, and it's going to be nice literature. We're going to move the Bible out of philosophy and out of truth. We're going to move the Bible over to literature. And in the 60s, that's what began to happen. It happened earlier, but by then it really happened. Okay? The Bible as literature, not as truth. Because we're atheistic, we're secular, and we're just going to figure this out ourselves. We've got our behavioral sciences. We're okay. We don't need God. But it's a nice book. We'll keep the book. Uh, we'll keep the Gilgamesh epic. We'll keep the Bible. It's fine. It's all literature. Okay? Now, there were voices that said maybe that's not such a good idea. There was a woman named Mary Shelley. Wollenshoff? Yeah, Wilson Wilsoncraft. She wrote a book named Frankenstein. The new Prometheus. And she argued that science, trying to play God, could create a monster that could destroy us. And then Hollywood got it and the meaning went away. <laughs> Boris Karloff became the, the monster. <laughs> so, but, but generally, with voices accepting, 
the secular, atheistic, modern world uh, worldview came into play. The church then said, what are we going to do with this? We have to decide. And in the fundamentalist, modernist debates, the church had to fight over several questions. I'm going to read them to you real quick. I'll give them to you next week so you have them. Uh, what do we do with the Bible? Is it the Word of God or not? Secondly, is man created or did he just randomly show up? Thirdly, what is the virgin birth? Did God actually come into flesh? That's not natural. That's not likely. What is the death of Jesus about anyway? Does he actually take away sin or is he just an example of a martyr? Is there really a physical, literal resurrection? After all, nobody saw the resurrection. Just some women said that there was an empty tomb. Maybe there, there's not really a resurrection. And therefore, maybe there's not a real second coming. So those who said, wait a minute, the Bible is the word of God. Man is a special creation. Uh, the virgin birth took place. Vicarious atonement took place. The resurrection took place. Jesus is coming back. They were called fundamentalists. This is the fundamentals of our faith. And they said, we will not accept any science that denies that. And they created what's called the conservative religious worldview. Many of you hold that view. We'll accept science as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. Right? So these people would say, your science may say there's sexual orientation. Your science may say this is how we can abort a child. But we say the word of God trumps that. That's the conservative religious worldview. The liberal religious worldview said, we will keep all of the Bible that doesn't contradict science. So if they find sexual orientation, we will change marriage. Okay? So the church split into conservatives and liberals theologically related to how much science do you allow? So the modern world has three, count them, three worldviews. Okay? Secular worldview, the Bible is literature. We don't need God, or we don't know if God exists, but either way is irrelevant. We're going to use science, we're going to use reason, and we will make a better world ourselves. Conservative religious group, we will cling to the word of God. We will take from science what it can give us that doesn't violate primary doctrines of the word of God. And the liberal Christian that said, we will keep what is left of the word of God after science tells us what they know. And the denominations split into liberal denominations and fundamentalist denominations. And uh, created a lot of battle in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Okay? So, the, the modern secular worldview is indifferent or hostile to the Bible as anything but literature. It views religion as a private and personal option that must not be influential in the public sphere. 
Those who are indifferent will remain silent, but those who are hostile will work to remove religion from public and governmental structures. Okay? So if you're wondering who's pushing for the removal of all Christian emblems from public buildings, it's this uh, secularism that's gone from rugged individualism to radical individualism. And that's the secular, the secular worldview. The modern liberal religious worldview believes that biblical and religious ideas are subject to modern science and understanding. Therefore, the Bible is subject to reinterpretation based on science. So if sexual orientation is valid, then the Bible must be rethought regarding marriage and family. And it's true also of birth control and abortion as well. Whatever science finds a way to do, we must let it lead and the Bible must follow. That's the liberal one. The conservative one believes that science can be accepted as long as it does not interfere with any significant biblical teaching. Science, therefore, is subject to the biblical revelation. And many who hold this view believe that this is the biblical worldview, but it isn't. I'll get to that later in the series. But it's very common to be not only a conservative Christian, but a conservative American. Because the political ideology is wagging the religious dog coming out of this. Okay? Which is why we have to rediscover the biblical worldview. And why Christians end up on all sides of the arguments, because everybody can find a verse, right? It's what, it's what we do. I see your verse and raise you too. Right? We go into apologetics. And so the people who want to believe in gay marriage say there's no male or female in Christ. Right? And, and the people who don't want to believe it says he made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Right? They've already taken a position. They're just using the Bible to, to do it. They're not saying, Lord, speak to us. We will hear what you say and we will do what you say. Right? What they're saying is, I don't want my boat tipped. I like it this way, and I'll find a verse that matches. And that's why we proof text all over the place instead of read the entire scriptures. So, most Christians and many religious Jews have a modern religious worldview that's eclectic. And they choose parts of the liberal, parts of the conservative religious ones, and they have lost denominational integrity... And we have the emergence of post-modernity, which I'm going to talk about at another time. So let me uh, come close to a conclusion here to, uh, to restate this so that you get it. So if you have questions, you can address it. If not, we can go eat. The modern human born in the 1800s and the 1900s was born into the modern era and generally has a modern worldview. If they were born after the 80s, 1980, through the present, they probably have a um, postmodern worldview. Now, I'm about to go back to teaching at CBU. And I will face people who are 18 years old. Now, 18-year-olds become conscious when they're about 10. You think back... About 10, you began to be more aware of what was going on around you, right? So that means I have to teach them within 
a period of 2004 to the present. Because that's their reality. If I talk about 9-11, I might as well be talking about Hiroshima because it's all in the past. And they have no knowledge of history. Okay? How do you teach such a person who has been taught that if they don't know the answer, pick C. And they know who Freud is and they know, I mean, they know the name Freud, and they know the word psychology, and they know they go together on a test. But they don't have a clue who he is or what psychology is. But they get A's in our educational system, using their short-term memory to get that information. So if you do what I do, I was talking to Dr. Lambeth about it uh, this week. If you do what I do and say, the only way you can get an A on a paper is by connecting it to other classes that you have taken or are taking, they look at me like I just said, They have no, what do you mean? Dr. Lewis last year asked a group of students to write a critical review. And they wrote that they didn't like it. That's critical. Negative. Well, what do you want? He gave them back their papers. What do you want? A critical review. They, they had no idea what he was talking about. Okay? Some of these are upper division college students. About to graduate and drive heavy machinery on the lane next to you. Okay? Postmodernism. We'll get there. But the modern world is about we can come to truth. So let me repeat those three worldviews, you can figure out which one you are. Secular, modern worldview. Science is the primary source of knowledge. Natural and social science can give us the best understanding of reality and human nature when it's combined with clear, rational thought and reason. As we get better knowledge through research and experimentation, we can make a better and more perfect world without war, without crime, without poverty, without sickness, and perhaps without death. Man is basically good. Circumstances create evil. That is the, that is the secular, modern worldview. Oh, I should add one thing to it. The primary institution that will keep all of society operating best is the government. Okay? Now, liberal religious. Science is the primary source of knowledge. Natural and social science can give us the best understanding of reality and human nature when combined with clear rational thought and reason. Sound the same? It is the same. The Bible and religion can enrich our lives when kept subject to science and reason. It can provide a moral perspective and a hope beyond death. But man, through science and reason, can make a better and more perfect world without war, crime, poverty, sickness, and perhaps death. This is what Jesus wanted us to do. Man is basically good. Circumstances create evil. We should change the circumstances.
The best institutions for doing that is the church and the government working together. Liberal, religious perspective. Okay? Conservative religious. The Bible interpreted correctly using reason and critical thinking is the primary source of knowledge and truth. It gives us information regarding God's intent in the creation and the nature of human beings. Man is not capable of good without God and salvation. Science and reason may be helpful if kept subject to biblical truth. Man cannot ultimately make a better world. He can only... uh, Follow God the best he can. The Messiah will bring a better world, and the next creation will eliminate war and crime and poverty and sickness and death. These three worldviews are presently being challenged by the postmodern worldviews. Postmodernity began in the 1900s, really came to fruition in the 1960s. And I'm going to talk about its development next time. So, let's pray.